0: While I would like to think I will never again need to cover the topic of returning to the office as a global pandemic eases up, there are, just as there were during the height of the pandemic, so many object lessons about work culture, about managing three-dimension. We all knew our staffs had kids and dogs and spouses, maybe even messy kitchens, but we saw and learned about each other. We also learned about each other's vulnerabilities— Maybe we didn't realize the depth of an underlying condition or that a mother-in-law was that much of a challenge. I bet you saw more tears from your team in the last year than you ever have, and I bet you yourself as a leader said or did things in this last year that reminded your team that you are not just the boss or the board chair. We had to care for each other. And as more and more of us are double vaccinated and we grapple with how to return to the office, we have to navigate the tactical with the personal, the personal we saw up close this year. The folks who do it right strike that. The folks who do it well, their organizations will be stronger, retention will be higher, and they will be on the path to built to last. Today, two of my favorite leaders grapple with this question, what do you do when people are afraid to come to work? Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. I'd like you to meet Nick Turner and Ellen LaPointe. You'll find their full bios in the show notes, but here's what's important to note. They're both really fine human beings. They're both kind of brilliant, and they are both seen by their teams as highly effective leaders. They're both very kind and very funny. Nick has been the CEO of the Vera Institute of Justice for seven years. He has had his boots on the ground in public service for decades with philanthropy front and center. Just a few short years ago, he moved into a terrific new space in industry city, Brooklyn. Note that the work of Vera involves no direct service provision. Ellen LaPointe is the CEO of Fenway Community Health in Boston. She just celebrated her one-year anniversary. She began her tenure on a Monday after moving cross-country for an amazing gig, and on Tuesday, that very next day, Boston shut down. Welcome to Boston, Ellen. Ellen is also all about philanthropy, public health, and justice. Why did I just introduce her sounding like Superwoman? Fenway has a staff of over 700 across multiple locations. Fenway is a federally qualified health center. Patients through the doors at Fenway every single day. For those of you who regularly listen to my podcast, you might remember that Ellen is a repeat customer to this podcast, having joined me to talk about her wild ride. A brand new CEO walks through the door on day one, and the world changes forever. Go. It's a great conversation. You should check it out. Nick, let's start with you. Thank you for joining me. looks like you're in the office. Do your dogs miss you?
1: I am indeed in the office. Uh, Buttercup and Pablo miss you, Joan. (laughs) They're okay without me for the day.
0: I see. Well, I I miss them desperately. Um, Ellen, thanks for subjecting yourself to yet another podcast and shoulder surgery. How are you doing?
2: Oh, Oh, thank you for bringing that up. I appreciate that. Um, Well, I I just wanted
0: everyone to remind – I wanted to remind everyone that you're not 30.
2: (laughs) Right, exactly. No, I don't think of it as a shoulder. I think of it as a metaphor, actually, right now. But I'm doing well. I'm recovering well from rotator cuff surgery due to aging. Thanks for telling everyone. So, Nick and Alan, I I
0: selected um, both of you because (laughs) – I don't typically do a duo podcast, but I know that neither of you are windbags, and, uh-huh. um, and each of you has a different perspective on this whole topic because of the different kinds of organizations that you run. So I wonder, um, first off, let's start with you, Nick, just a quick 411 on Vera, and uh, if you would then, can you set up how work got done during the pandemic?
1: sure so um, the Vera Institute of Justice as you as you um, uh, describe Joan as is, uh, uh, is where justice reform organization we're probably the one of the larger ones in the country um, we do mostly policy and practice work although we in, indeed actually have some work where we uh, spend time in facilities in jails and prisons uh, courthouses and and the like our commitment is to end over Criminalization and mass incarceration in in this country, and we bring a, a pretty unusual set of tools to that um, to that fight. Uh, we bring uh, data analytics, a real understanding of how public sector um, agencies change, uh, uh, and and credibility that comes with both of those things, and then a. Uh, advocacy capacity to you know to lobby to uh, do public education and so our our goal is really to to end mass incarceration and the over criminalization of people in this in this country and to take on work that uh, that tries to achieve that at scale that makes a real that gets at the mass and the over of those things it doesn't just try to tinker around the margins so you asked this question about. You know how we um, how we got work done during the the pandemic, and I and, and I guess I would you know the the first headline is I would say you know smoothly surprisingly um, we got most of our work done most of our product is it's it's information and it's and it's intellectual, I uh, and so to be able to make the transition to to produce that with the tools that we usually have in the office which are you know computers and servers and um software to analyze and conversation and so on a lot of that was deployable remotely it wasn't it wasn't um there were challenges for sure but there was also a body of work that we do where where we spend a great deal of time in prisons and jails and unfortunately that had to come to a really abrupt uh close um I think that we succeeded. I, you know, I had a masterful and very well organized uh, uh, chief operating officer who was ready for the maybe not this precise crisis, but a crisis like this um, from day one. And so she really helped um, sort of drive us into the remote world. We had. Um, you know, just made significant investments in technology, gotten into the cloud, where we had not been a year before. I can't imagine what things would have looked like in the absence of that, and and so we had a team and capacity to really make that uh, to really make the transition. Um, and uh, so, you know, so I, so I generally feel good about what we did. I mean, we'll talk much more much more about it, but um, but it was uh, the initial stages were surprisingly. Um, non-disruptive. I mean, not dealing with the emotional aspect of it, but but we really made the transition smoothly. Incredibly proud of what my organization was able to accomplish.
0: Um, Thanks, Nick. And just um, clarify for folks who are listening, general budget size at Vera.
1: Uh, we're about a hundred seventy-five million-dollar organization. We have about three hundred staff members. Um, so, so we, you know, we're sizable. About a hundred million of that we pass through. Uh, we're intermediaries on some very big um, federal bodies of work, and so we pass more than half of that through to subcontractors.
0: So, Ellen, um, uh, I'd like you also to do the quick four-one-one on Fenway. And as I was listening to Nick. There are some actual interesting alignments with the kind of work that you do at Fenway in addition to the direct service provision. So I thought that was real interesting. So quick 411 about Fenway. And you had a whole different set of circumstances. And the question I will ask you is the same one, is how did you get work done during the pandemic?
2: Sure. Thank you. So yes, uh, Fenway Health uh, is an LGBTQIA plus health focused organization that was founded actually 50 years ago this year, uh, 1971. Um, And we do provide an array of um, sort of essential services. Um, First and foremost, we are a federally qualified health center that provides primary care to over 35, uh, 34,000 patients every year. Um, we also uh, have public health services that uh, support people um, in their everyday needs. We provide, we do uh, population health, HIV research, and other uh, biomedical and epidemiologic research that's uh, answering key questions um, that have impact our community. Um, we have an education and training center to help develop um, and increase the number of uh, competent. Uh, care providers and clinicians nationally and globally um, who are able to meet the needs of LGBTQIA patients. And then we have a whole policy and advocacy arm um, that uh, is, you know, kind of in the fight every day when policy decisions that affect the people who count on us are happening. Um, the organizational budget is just over $140 million or so. And uh, we have uh, north of 650 employees who work at several different facilities Uh, some of which are patient-facing and some of which are not.
0: So the, uh, so riddle me this, how did work get done during the pandemic?
2: So as you mentioned in the intro, um, I really did arrive, I arrived on March 9th. So it was actually, but to the minute, almost kind of the moment where the organization had to um, really accelerate um, efforts to reduce the spread of COVID-19 in our facilities. But We had to do that without missing a beat on um, delivering on our mission and and providing essential care and services to people who are counting on us every day. So um, like Nick, I had, uh, there was one individual in in particular in our organization, our AVP of data and informatics who had already essentially prepared, even though she didn't know it for this day, Um, we were um, able to pivot relatively smooth, quite smoothly, I should say, um, into a, a telehealth approach. So the game was this see how many patients um, we can convert to a telehealth experience first by phone only then by video that all happened in a matter of about three weeks while migrating nearly all of those 650 plus people off-site so really in the initial stages of the pandemic we had something north of 75 percent of all patient visits happening um, uh, via telehealth, um, excuse me, ninety-five percent or so, with about seventy-five percent of our staff working remotely. Um, over the months that followed, we eased back on that a bit and started bringing staff back, um, and settled ultimately into kind of a what what has been a um, our situation for many many months now, which is something just just half of our just under half of our staff work on site at any given time, um, because of course people need to be seen in person in order to receive competent care. So we we really have been sort of integrating now the telehealth and the on um, work and the research goes on and the, and the advocacy goes on and the education and training goes on, but that's largely being done, um, via remote.
0: And do you, are there any challenges with dealing with the fact that some of your staff are safe at home and others are yeah. sort of right there on the front line? I mean, it is a, a va- a vastly different experience for your staff. Like Nick's shop just closed and everybody went remote. Yours didn't. Sure.
2: Well, well, that's right. I think one of the things that I think many, many um, organizations have been grappling with is, you know, first of all, just sending your staff home is the beginning of the conversation, right? Well, all we're doing there is reducing the spread of COVID 19. But for people to suddenly have to work efficiently and effectively from their bathtub, I mean, you know, I know people who have done this, right? I'm not even kidding. They go into the bathroom because it's the only place where their many kids or their dogs or their Uh, their circumstances aren't in the way of their ability to deliver. I mean, if you have to provide, you know, we have a a staff of over 80 behavioral health professionals who are doing uh, psychotherapy and that has to be done, you know, with respect and and it has to work. And so it's hugely challenging for people to sort of figure out how to do that at home. And I don't want to, I don't want to gloss over another piece of this, which is that every one of us, every single human being on the planet, um, you know, was also coping with the stresses and strains of COVID-19 in our own lives every day, every minute of every day. We have many staff who lost loved ones. Yeah. We had, you know, lots and lots of trauma and loss and and fear happening every day. So um, what I'm just so astonished, I'm just so proud of um, the staff who were able to make that trans- transfer, tra- to, to sort of essentially make that happen, manifest the same care and attention and quality that we people expect from us and need from us um, while also navigating that every single minute of every day was really something to, to witness.
0: And neither of you were exempt from that trauma yourselves, right? No. So you had both no. the COVID trauma and other, other things that were going on in your lives and, and, you know, how did you navigate? And I, I do want to get to sort of getting back to work, but I also just want to place everyone, right. That for everybody who led an organization, there was personal trauma in each of your families, right? Like Nick dealt with health issues in his family. So, so Nick, just a quick snapshot of the sort of your life during COVID as you were also attempting to lead and manage.
1: Yeah, I, um, so, I mean, we, we did have our, you know, our, our share of, of trauma. My, my, um, father-in-law, um, died from covid in in july and i have this very distinct re- recollection of the early stages in march when my wife teresa turned to me and said my dad's going to die because he because his health circumstance was that he was in and out of the hospital and it was just a matter of and so it was really just sort of like waiting for the boom to drop it was just a matter of time and so it felt like it was a matter of time when that sentence you know when she heard that he had that he had COVID and he had many conditions that were going to make it non-survivable and we had lots of other losses of older you know family members that we had to contend with in the context of not being able to provide comfort to know that they left behind people who were isolated and so on so yeah so that that was profound and on some you know, on some level, it also. I also felt um, incredibly lucky and 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 privileged that that I that I like many other people. I was contending with with fear and the um, you know, missing people having, um, college. You know, a a college student come back home and deal with his boredom and his manifestation of his frustration which is you know it's like a 6 foot 1 toddler um and and all of that and and i felt lucky that you know i mean i think we all experience that and there's this strange thing about the you know about the um the what i guess i would describe as sort of like the lower grade traumas that we all feel um and that we feel guilty for feeling we sort of feel lucky that that's mostly what it is that it's you know we're not talking about tons of relatives who have passed away or sickness within, you know, the, the nuclear family, but in any event, I think, you know, so one of the things that I really learned at least early in the, you know, early in that period, or that I made a determination that, that, um, that I had to do as leader of the organization was, um, to assume the sort of the default rule that, um, I didn't know what people were going through. That there was a lot that was un that was unseen because people have various degrees of privacy and aren't necessarily willing or eager to, um, you know, to to talk about something that they were struggling with. Um, and so we made an assumption that ev- that everyone was struggling. I think it was, uh, you know, that's that's not rocket science because we all were, you know, we all were struggling. And one of the things that it made me do as a leader, thinking about decisions that we made within the organization and how I sort of deployed myself, um, was that it was incredibly important to acknowledge the whole person. That the that there was a blurring of the professional and the personal. That we sort of you had to sort of assume if something was not going well. You had to sort of ask yourself the question: What else might be happening? Um, and often, something you know, something was happening. And and so you know, so we structured a bunch of policies within the organization, essentially to institution, you know, to institutionalize that, to put care and safety of our staff first, um, to go quickly to you know, um, flexibility of schedule, recognizing that people had caregiving responsibilities, um, to do what we could. Um, to make their work environments um, as comfortable as possible. So we gave everyone an allowance to get an ergonomic chair if you need. And this is like, this is a position of privilege. I mean, we're yes. a well-funded organization. We were able to make these choices. There was no hesitation in making them, but I know that many other nonprofits are not in this, in, you know, in this situation that we were able to, you know, provide Wi-Fi for people who didn't have good Wi-Fi, so that they could, you know you know step up to a higher bandwidth and do the work that they needed to do and um and then instituted a lot of um you know a, a lot of practices uh that that focused on you know self-care and people's um mental health and and just sort of reminded everyone to sort of like take you know take it easy and then as as director of the organization i tried to um and i this was actually a really important outlet for you know for me but i you know i started writing weekly emails until it got a little too tiring in june (laughs) i started writing weekly emails when i thought maybe it'll be like you know six or seven weeks that i have to do this and then but um you know really sort of reflecting as a human being on what was you know on what was happening and trying to do what i could to validate and acknowledge the the anxieties, the challenges that people were, you know, were going through to sort of say, look, this is okay. Like we're all dealing with it because even while we were making institutional decisions and taking care of people, folks in an organization are nervous. Am I, you know, what's going to happen to me? The economy is tanking. Am I going to be like out of a, you know, am I going to be out of a job if I'm not performing at X level, is that going to come back and haunt me? And so, so I sort of wanted to say to people like, it's a, you know, it's okay. And then to try to provide a little bit of comic relief. So there was one email where I showed a picture of the wonderful haircut that Teresa gave me, which was that in fact, not so wonderful. And I was like, this symbolizes the fact that we are all just trying to get by that. Yeah. It is good. It is good enough. Good enough is okay.
0: Yeah. And so this, this notion, I want to point the question towards you, Ellen, <clears throat> you being traumatized by this pandemic and your relocation and having to lead through it maybe you can reflect on that as well
2: yeah i will just take a minute with that because again i think what i want i said this earlier you know we every single person has a covid story um that you know is multi-layered and um, this was so this is mine um, um on the main i would just offer that you know our family came through uh safely and um without any major financial impacts or harm so i i, I fundamentally want to just acknowledge that first and foremost and now i will complain um so the, <laughs> getting there then was really tough because i suddenly was i mean i not only was i new to town with a you know new job and as what it was already meant to be a steep learning curve in the role I had to really hit the ground kind of sprinting in the organization. Um, and I did not have the opportunity to establish a professional network of any kind. I mean, normally, I'm so relational I would be just reaching out to everyone I knew around me, and I didn't have any connections here yet. And my personal um, my personal um, community, you know, also I had I didn't have the opportunity to really establish here. I mean, thankfully, with Zoom, I was able to stay connected to my, my loved ones in California, um, but it really turned. You know, the thing I real- I did realize very, very quickly was that I had to make a very intentional decision to focus on self care. Um, I was incredibly attentive to my, literally my my physical well being. Um, I made sure I ate well and slept and moved kind of every day, um, which was good because we all need to do that anyway. Um, and gave myself a break. You know, Shits Creek. Hello, twice, twice loved it loved it you know it's just like anything you need i think nick you're kind of making the same point and giving giving myself that permission i think with the team um i think you know a lot of what nick describes as having done with his team i i, I would echo with ours also again acknowledging a very well resourced organization that had the capacity to give money to people who were suddenly having to navigate stuff at home that they weren't Expecting and so forth, but I would just offer. um, I think the the kind of the soft the softer work was probably the there was the how to make sure to deliver on our mission. But in terms of showing up and um, leading, I would sort of create two buckets. I guess Um, there's the sort of information bucket, and then there's the connection bucket, and they were co equal in importance in terms of how I spent my time and energy. So what do you? need to convey every day to people that they are going to receive and know and, and work have in order to kind of do what we do, you know, deliver as expected? Um, and then how can we show up with folks um, to support and acknowledge and appreciate um, um, and hold and witness and make space for people who are suffering even as they, you know, every day in and day out, Show up for the people who need us, and I would say this: just you know, for me, like in, I've known this for a long time. Like in-person connection is is kind of you know, if you like this phrase, kind of one of my superpowers. It's really a thing that I rely on um, in my uh, leadership world and so work. And it was a huge challenge for me to suddenly have to do all of this on TV, you know, <laughs> with, with you know, and with, by the way, staff who are young enough, uh, y- uh, y- enough younger than I that they don't even know what a TV is. Right. <laughs> monitor. Um, but, you know, that, you know, um, so finding ways to sort of leverage that technology in, to foster connection was a key thing. So, um, uh, Joe knows this, we did, well uh, colleagues of mine instituted these virtual gatherings with our staff twice a week, once at noon on Monday, once at five o'clock on Thursday, that basically folks could just drop in and whatever wanted to happen in that half hour would happen. There were meditations, there were jokes about, you know, things, there was, you know, just a way to connect that was unstructured and supported. Um, I got in the habit of doing it's funny you said you did the the emails Nick I, I, I put a video message out on a Friday afternoon pretty early on and quickly realized this was the thing I needed to continue doing. so I, mm-hmm. I was doing a video meeting a uh, message and that my rule there was no information, no PSAs, all about sort of support and connection and and showing up in ways that sort of made me, perhaps a bit more three-dimensional than I might otherwise have been in this context. So in my place, um, you know, with my view, with my, you know, life um, and sharing what I felt I could appropriately. So people um, really understood that, you know, kind of we're all going through something. Um, Yeah.
0: You're listening to nonprofits are messy. Thank you for joining me today. In case you haven't picked up my latest book during COVID lockdown, I took time from Netflix binging to rewrite my first edition of Joan Gary's Guide to Nonprofit Leadership. I wanted to make sure that board and staff leaders had a new guide to help them to navigate a very different world, one where old rules don't apply and some new rules will be critical to thriving. This version is in paperback, and you can learn more about it at book.joangary.com. And now back to the podcast. Yeah, I um, so that's the perfect bridge, actually, to um, it sounds as though, and I heard this from lots of clients, that um, more of your humanity had to show up as a leader this past year. And it is actually one of the things that really um, that dr- en- enamored me with the nonprofit sector was that this notion of the the three dimensionalness that people were coming to work every day not just for to c- capture their year end bonus right but because the because there was an emotional connection a human connection to the work and I could actually make the argument that you know, maybe not every week, but that the kind of things that you, Ellen, and Nick are talking about are the kinds of things that staff members really need from their leaders and, well, pandemic or no pandemic. And so I want to shift and say, okay, so we, things are easing up and I know, you know. uh, is, is, I, I think we would all be remiss if we didn't take those lessons with us and say, okay, I am a different leader because of this. And as a result, going into 2021, and as I think about how we work together and how we come back to work, I got to bring all of that with me too. So, Ellen, what the, what's the calculus for you as you think about Um, where you're at as it relates to staff returning to your office. And so how are you you thinking about that? And how are the decisions, you know, sort of where are you
2: at in your decision-making? Absolutely. Um, So one thing I would just, as you were kind of reflecting back, this notion about bringing humanity to your leadership, uh, what I would say is, you know, there is um, a difference between showing up as a whole person in three dimensions and having bad boundaries, right? These are different things. So I think for me, I, I don't know how to actually be at work and not be this full person I am. Sometimes people, I think, can't make sense of that. But I, I do on the main find, you know, just being an authentic person is always a good thing. Um, um But I don't think it's appropriate, obviously, for Leaders to Burden, um colleagues, at any level with um, things that don't belong in the workplace or, or within that relationship. So I think that's the judgment you know, around kind of knowing where those lines need to be at all times. So just offer that. Um, in terms of where we're at, uh, the, um, of course we're all thrilled and delighted that this shift is now underway with so many people now vaccinated we could do another whole podcast if you want sometime, Joan, about what it was like to to uh, also be doing vaccine testing and research and, and actually administering vaccines as an FQHC. It was like having to stand up a new nonprofit in our organization every couple of weeks. Right. Um, um, so that was just quite an experience and an adventure. We are um, treating the summer as a time of transition. I expect that we're not much different from others at that in that regard. Um, really figuring out how to phase in increased kind of, if you will, flows of people coming through the doors who are patients um, and who are staff. Um, we, again, um, as a health care facility have to be um, thinking about that. And I would offer uh, in Massachusetts where we're based, um, while the governor lifted all of the restrictions kind of broadly, like everything's open now at full capacity, those, were, those restrictions were maintained for healthcare facilities. So we're still operating in that context. However, um, we we want and expect that we will be returning many more staff and patients to on-site services. We also believe, by the way, there will be some pretty short-term impacts on our ability to continue to provide telehealth in the same way. A lot of that was made easy um, under um, states of emergency that were declared state by state. And those as those get lifted, we're going to have to work hard to maintain access to telehealth services because it's complex, and I'll leave it at that. But in any event, um, thinking about this summer as a highly iterative process, always thinking about safety first and foremost. Um, um, but as to your point, um, you know, some staff are more reticent to return. We're all, I think, having to kind of rewire our brains around the neural pathways that we uh, appropriately developed to associate crowds with danger. I mean, we've all learned that right. in our bodies, right? And now we have to retrain ourselves to see gr- groups of people gathered, not as a source of danger, but as a source of hope and freedom, right? They actually, that's, that's what it looks like now to be able to go back because we can be safe again. But we want to be respectful and mindful of that that's going to take time. Um, doing everything we can with our facilities, if you will, to kind of ensure people have the, still have the opportunity to distance, knowing full well that our staff will not be fully vaccinated at any given time. And we will absolutely have members of the public walking in the door every day who are not vaccinated. So from our standpoint, we are in a little bit of untested waters, I think it's going to play out over months. Um, and we will always be very, very aligned with, you know, Department of Public Health and state guidance around kind of how we are meant to to behave in that regard. I think we'll be wearing masks for quite some time in, in the in our buildings. Um, and I think some of the work is going to be, you know, what you read about in the news now, just around people who are in, increasingly more resistant to that and having to kind of introduce new skill sets and competencies in our staff about how to graciously manage that right um right
0: um so so nick how about you um where i mean i can see you right now you are at the offices at vera and sort of what what's the current thinking about uh the workplace at your workplace
1: well, yes, you can you can see me in my office and you see that it's mostly, you know, that it's mostly empty. I've actually been coming into the office um, since July of last, uh, you know, of, of last summer. I mean, you know, periodically for, for me, it was important to actually have um, a, a process of commuting, of, of you know, of a, a buffer zone between home and 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 work. Um, I want to say one one thing quickly about something that you know that ellen said that's important i mean i i she and i probably share in 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 common um that i that i believe that one of the things that helps to make me an effective leader is that for for me leadership is tactile and it's and it's personal and it's in and it's engaged so i it's really important to for me to to know people and to You know, and to see them, and not just as oh, you're a senior program associate with X program, but to have a sense of their dimensionality. And I, and I've worked long enough, not as a boss of an organization, but within organizations, to know that that mattered to me when I was coming up through places. It mattered, you know, to to be seen. And I think that one of the things that I've, you know, that I've uh, so it's been a challenge for me to lead in this circumstance where people are reduced to, um, you know, to two dimensions, where the the way in which you you know you don't get to have the conversation in the dining area or just sort of swing by someone's desk and chat. You know, you gotta like invite them to a Zoom, and you know, and there's all this sort of formality, and I and I don't per, I don't personally particularly like that, and I I but I also think that it doesn't Help our staff. I mean that I, you know that that people are missing out on mentorship. Um, they're missing out on all the interstitial conversations that happen that help you to understand the culture of an organization, or the, you know the, um, this difficult aspect of a piece of work that you know, after the hour meeting, you might have walked out of the conference room and talked with a colleague about, oh, I'm really struggling with X or Y, but it becomes different when everyone signs off of Zoom. And, and so-
2: pe- Fridge, I'm instead. What's that? <laughs> and then you just go to the fridge instead. Yeah,
1: right. And, or, you know, like just rub your eyes and try to like take a break or whatever it might. Be. And so, so I actually, I think that, you know, for Vera, our commitment is really to, uh, you know, we want to develop staff to, to, um, uh, you know, to, not only do their jobs effectively um here but to grow as professionals so mentorship matters and that kind of um you know that that kind of more frequent um touch and engagement really matters and particularly in my in in my field we're in social justice field that you know we can talk about the pandemic we should also talk about the nationwide protests and call for racial equity and, and If we want to be an anti-racist organization, we have to be paying very close attention um, to how we build pathways for development for uh, for um, black and brown um, young people who are coming up through the organization, how we're paying attention to mentoring um, and all of all of that which i think sort of gets unintentionally stripped away in a remote, remote environment. Mm-hmm. so so for me it's uh, you know it's not just myself as a leader but it's also what i think is really important within the organization that that in that dictates what we should be doing. so now to your question then we are doing exactly the same thing that, that Ellen is, which is that we are uh, we're sort of doing a, a slow incline into coming back. Um, we announced in March that we anticipated coming back in September, sort of fully with some, with a hybrid model. Uh, so recognizing that some that some of this work from home stuff actually works that people can be productive they can do their writing they can do their research from from home and we can figure out how to do the teamwork three days a week and you know allow for people the flexibility uh, you know otherwise um, but we set early September as the date we did a survey of our team to understand what they what did they like that was working for us now that they wanted us to import into the future. Um, what did they what did they feel like they were missing? How could we help them to sort of reenter? Um, and then so this summer will will be all about like this slow incline, this, you know, this ramping up. I'm, I um, uh, Im- impose a bit more of an imperative on our on our senior leaders and our managers, which is say that if you're vaccinated, um, you know, I expect you to 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 come in. Um and I expect you to come in more and and start working on it now because it takes a while. It's not just like oh I'm vaccinated I'm good I'm ready. Like you're like working through whatever resetting the neural pathways as Alan said or sort of working through the fear right and getting out of the the habits that have been set for us. Um is a you know, it's a weeks, months long process. So I've really tried to encourage people, um, you know, to to do to do that. So I, so I, I guess the last thing that I want to say about this is that you know you made reference, Joan, to the space that that I'm sitting in right now. That very so we moved into this uh, beautiful loft like space that we designed entirely to help teams collaborate to create what I call um happy collisions in the workplace The all of again like the interstitial stuff the conversation with someone uh in the you know in the cafe area the ability to for a team to go plant in a particular area and do some collaborative work um we yeah. think it's good for the way we work we think it's good for culture and for people's attachment to the place um so so you know, we signed a fifteen-year lease <laughs> for this place, and then uh, moved in, and then six months later, the you know the pandemic hit. So, so this really is a you know I, you know again I think I would just sort of sum up by saying that it, this really is um, I think it's important for the institution's culture. I I think it's important for career development I think it's important for attachment to the Institute I think it's important for race equity when we're thinking about how we develop and bring people into career pathways and really make sure that we are um, holding our the, the values that we have um, together as a community.
0: I'm struck by you talking about <clears throat> what the what the pandemic created an absence of as, as, you know, in in your work culture, in your workspace as a leader. Um, so I'm going to ask Ellen, um, so who are you as this pandemic eases up and as people start to come back together and we start to reframe the, the gatherings as, as something, something to celebrate rather than something to fear? Um, will you lead differently when people are back together and what did you learn that you're going to bring with you and hold on to in okay. leading and managing um, knowing you know that that so much of what you used to what you might have relied on was absent for so long
2: sure thank you well i can think of like sort of big and small ways to answer that i think sure. there's just some- Daily practices like I, you know, this video messaging thing. I don't do those every week any longer. Um, I actually realized at some point it was taking more bandwidth than I had. I had to actually notice that for myself um, to do um, in a a thoughtful way every week. So I'm, but I'm, I'm going to not let those go. I hear a lot from people that they really appreciate that kind of connection. So there's no reason not to do that. I mean, we're again, we're 650 people on multiple sites, online staff meetings, actually, I think we're going to keep all staff meetings because that way everyone actually can participate and you don't have to be at any particular site um, and, and, um, you know, we've had very, very, very strong success in having a lot of people tune into those things every week or every month we do the monthly. Um, one thing I wanted to raise, um, which is so tactical, but I will, it was sort of something in a leadership moment for me. I realized we were doing, um, I'm going to put this in air quotes for those who can't see it, um, on the podcast, I'm quoting in the air. We had a retreat. Uh, Now, for those of you who've tried Zoom retreats, I I think you could, you know, I think it's an affront, actually, (laughs) incredibly hard to do well. Um, But um, at one point we we had one with our leadership team because we needed to do some planning. We needed several hours together. And so at the beginning of this meeting, I did something which was to basically invite. Invite them to presence in a particular way, um, which is um, and, I'm, and I use myself as an example I mean even while we 've been on this podcast taping session, I have sent a text, and you don 't know it. I have become a master at multitasking on zoom you don 't even know it because i 'm staring right at that green picture thing right in front of my camera, right. Um, So I, I'm
1: watching a movie right now.
2: I just made a (laughs) meal. I think I actually (laughs) think
0: the text might've come to me actually.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe, maybe it did. But in any event, the point is, I asked the leadership teams to imagine if they were doing all of these things in person in a conference room. Like if at any given time, I just decided to stand up and go talk to Joan in the middle of a conversation, or I just started doing email um, while I was being asked to participate in a small breakout m- group, <laughs> um, you know, it, it, all of these things, because it's, you know, the effect of the, effectively, what we've, I, unfortunately, I think become masterful at is um, kind of not being fully present in conversation. Right. Um, and it's um, I get it. I'm not judged. I'm actually not judging us. I like this. We all come by this honestly. Um, but um, I think inviting people to presence in, in person is something, um, uh, you know, having people, so I said, please put your phone somewhere you can't reach it. And please, I'm going to ask you to actually, we're going to have a shared agreement today that you're going to turn your email, email off for the next hour until we take a break and and just be with us. So, I, you know, finding ways to kind of bring forward things I've observed about us, myself especially, you know, um, and how we can use that in spaces that are both virtual and in person, I think will be great. Um
1: Ellen, oh, I love that you you when you talked about the retreat. That you said that it was not a retreat, but it was an affront. <laughs> as Joan as Joan knows, um, uh, I I made the judgment of driving our leadership team through a strategic planning process um, for the for March, April, May, and June, and then we've been implementing it sense. And so I, I think a front probably is, uh, is, is probably a, it's <laughs> probably a nice way to, to describe the way some of my, my team feels about what we've been through. But I do want to say this, you know, this one thing, I mean, for all of our, you know, talk about sort of seeing people wholly and, 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 a you know, um, you know, a, appreciating, uh, you know, um, care and safety and health and giving folks sort of a, a break i one of the things that i felt profoundly over the course of the, the past 15 months was that was that i had a i had a very special imperative to think long term about the organization and so did my leadership team and that we had to and while it's so easy to sort of like get lost in the daily morass of you know 10 zoom meetings and oh my god are we doing this again this is like groundhog day and so on and so forth that that it 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 felt more important than ever to to supply some direction and purpose and momentum for the place that and i and joe knows because we talked about this a lot i mean there were certainly moments of of uh, um lack of certainty on 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 my part when i was like i don't you know maybe this is a little bit too complex or a little bit too much for us to be doing but it, you know but at the end of the day um you know i, I think that that was you know really important. we didn't even know what post-pandemic was going to look like um but I, 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 I think we what we really believed was that we needed to be clear about who, you know, have the best idea of like who we were going to be, how we needed to emerge in whatever that environment was, and with a clear sense of purpose. And I'm incredibly proud of my team for having gone through that process, um, that that affront. Um, I do want to say one other thing, Joan, that's interesting mm-hmm. if, if there's enough time to do it, yeah. which is that that um, one of the things that I'm worried about as we sort of get back into, the sort of um, you know the the physical space of the the work world and so on um, is is that we've gotten, I think it's fair to say that that um, that the last fifteen months have have um, created a different set of neural pathways. Uh, and, and I don't, I don't regret it, but I think it's going to be a challenge to get out of it, which is that where the the personal and the professional totally blurred, you're sitting there looking at, I mean, you're, you're observing people's um, trauma or sort of hardship. You're talking yes. about it a lot. You were seeing where they live. Um, we are messaging front and center. Look, it is really like, we care about you. It's important. We like your health and your Safety comes first. You have conversations about caregiving, so on so forth. And I think that what it's, you know, what that is an unintended consequence of it, and maybe maybe it's all good. I'm not sure that it is, is that it's sort of blurred lines between sort of what's professional and what's personal. And it's made it hard for like we've taken on 80 new staff members at Vera in the past year. And so they've entered a culture where the whole conversation is about, you know, I mean, where these lines are blurred. And I think for young people in a, in an office culture, it's hard to figure out what is, where are the guardrails? Where, like how, you know, what's, you know, where's the line? How do I talk about things? Because, because it's all, it's all one big, you know, it's one, it's one big mess. And because we've been, you know, where we tend to be permissive of, you know, oh, so and so feeling like, incredibly anxious at this moment, or we're all like a little bit off the hook, um, sort of reestablishing sort of like rules of engagement um, in a way. I think might be an important part of what we have to do going going forward.
0: I, I don't I, know if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, it does. I want to. I want Ellen in on that same comment. I want her to reflect on that too. And I, I what I'm kind of one of the things I'm hearing you say first of all is that. Um, can we as leaders sustain that care? Like there's one piece of it is like once we are back to whatever the new thing is that we live in, right? um, Can, uh, will we lose it? Can we sustain it? Will people expect that degree of care? Can we provide it? And then to your point, which is, is it, does will they expect the blurry Will will the the people like the blurriness is the blurriness problematic right so i I think there are two pieces of the puzzle is that you know perhaps perhaps the pendulum swung more towards care and self care does it swing back or does it does it just by virtue of the reality of things swing back? Do people miss it? Like I, I'm, I, I think there's a really an interesting thing about this sort of personal, professional, and the sort of the 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 swing. So, Ellen, why don't you take it? I think that probably will. Sure. You probably be the last word on this, actually. Oh my goodness!
2: Wow. Okay. No pressure. Um, so uh, I think yeah, this notion of blurriness is. There are, there are sort of positives and negatives to it in my view. So the, the one I'll share a story One, you know, I got, we got an email from um, a colleague on one of our teams, we being a couple of senior leaders, w- not a few months ago, maybe four months ago, basically saying, you know, our whole team is basically working 7am to 7pm. Now we are never not on email and um, it's burdensome and problematic for us. Um, and I they appreciated that they made that visible and, um, uh, and I, in my view, just for the record, I don't believe this is a good idea, right? People should not be kind of working all the time. It's not really healthy or sustainable or desirable. But um, um, what what I realized in talking with colleagues was, you know, we as leaders, um, it's always comes back to modeling, right? So am I sending emails at six or seven? Am I, uh, what am I doing? That's kind of uh, either intentionally or unintentionally kind of reinforcing the expectation because that, that people are gonna be checking email at all, at all hours. Can I schedule these emails to go out at a different time? Can I purposely not respond on a weekend? Can I put in the subject matter, please respond on Monday morning? You know, something, what, what can I do? Simple little steps that I both model and then hopefully um, we can see kind of diffuse themselves in the organization to create an expectation that people will have a sense of balance rather than blurring balance, right? Um, but you know, this notion again of, um, uh, what we would might call blurring a personal professional, uh, I will go back to that word boundaries, you know, it's really fine and good for us to know each other as humans. I think that's great. I think one thing in our race equity work in our own, you know, what will I think be a, a, a forever journey of, of becoming an anti-racist organization is to think about, uh, we hear clearly from many staff um, who are BIPOC identified that they, they don't feel like they can bring their whole self to work. They don't feel the same um, freedom to show up um, um, uh, or be, and because they fear they won't be seen. Or, and no, excuse me, they have experienced not being seen. And they have experienced um, uh, not being met in ways that matter. And so I think some of our work is, in fact, to kind of create the conditions in organizations where people feel like they can really show up professionally um, with their entire kind of being um, and such that we can make space and make room for um, uh, you know, the morning after uh, eight uh, Asian people are shot to death in Atlanta, that that's going to set people back. And we want to, I think this is actually one of the things that has come out of the last year that we really, really want to hold on to um, and use to kind of amplify our commitment and work um, in the space of race equity, but also just more generally in sort of in, 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 in space at creating, you know, kind of, a place to work where people really do feel like they can, they can, they can, it, it's okay to say, this is a hard day and here's why. Um, and I need some support around, you know, getting my job done and take care, taking care of myself. So I think that's an incredible opportunity and a challenge yeah. um, with the work ahead. And, and I'll add one last thing since mm-hmm. I get the board, um, you know, figuring out over the next, I think it's going to take well over, well past the summer, six months, 12 months to really understand what this um, what it's going to be like to kind of sustain an organizational culture where you have some people working remotely at any given time. Um, how do we have meetings? How do you know, all that stuff. I don't think we need to get into it, but I think we need to, we're going to have to figure out how to support um, team building and support and and culture in healthy ways when, when people are not on site in the same way, but lots of organizations were doing that before and we should ask them how they do it. Yeah, we should.
0: We should awesome. definitely. Um, so uh, actually a uh, brief, um, uh thinking about the folks who are listening today who are executive directors many of whom don't have as many zeros on their budget as you all do and but you know smaller staffs sort of one piece of advice you might offer them as they begin to navigate this sort of return to you know some new new normal ellen i'll start with you and i'm going to give nick the last word
2: okay that sounds fair so um First of all, you know, be easy with yourself, um, um, and, and figure out how to be attentive to your own well-being every day. Because this thing is relentless, and we have to be showing up healthy and energized. Uh, my advice is: write the words A "grace" and "patience" in big letters on pieces of paper, and put those pieces of paper where you can see them at all times. Um, I mean, sincerely, um, it's really the key, I think, to, to getting through tough times. Um, and being spacious with one another. Um, lastly, I would have folks take a minute, take this time, some time in the next several months, to sit with your team and click up. What have we learned about ourselves? How can that inform how we would approach any crisis? Um, um, you know, we, hopefully, we'll never need a pandemic playbook again. But uh, there's so much we've learned that we're going to be able to use forever. So just take some time with that. Um, everybody can make that time, no matter what their budget. I think.
0: Absolutely. I like that. All right, Nick, advice. Well, I
1: suppose this isn't, I was going to say avoid pandemics, but I suppose that's not really helpful advice because it's all beyond our, uh, our control. So uh, on the very practical level, I would say like get in the cloud, um, <laughs> which has all sorts of valuable um, things, but I, I agree with, with Ellen about, um, about grace and patience. I think the one um, and uh, to, to be, easy with yourself as a leader, but I think also to remember that you that that as a leader you have special responsibilities yeah. um, and that um, and that no one else has and that people are looking for you to to, you know, to to lead and that the, you know, vision and direction and long term trajectory, um, you know, is something that you're uniquely responsible for. And so I think you have to, you have to find that, that, that balance. I don't think you should let what I just said, you know, drive you crazy and drive you to work, um, you know, uh, 14 hour days or whatever it might be, because that's not, because that's not sustainable. But uh, I think one absolutely has to have the presence of mind that it's, you know, it, it, it's you. there's, Maybe there's a bit of a board as a backstop, but really, it, it's it's probably you. And I think that that's just important to, to remember.
0: And I and I and I will add, and then we'll close it up, and I'll just say thank you. But, I, I, you know, I in hard, in these hard times, and as people sort of navigate what what's new before them, the leadership thing is also about r- reminding yourselves of the roles that you play in fueling the passion of the people who work in your organization. Um, And that that's what brought them there and that they're tired, right? And that they have some PTSD going on here and that you are uniquely suited to relight their pilot light to sort of brighten the flame that is the that is what will get them um excited about being back like it that will over may compensate for anxiety is the right now we can do this together to do this thing we all came here to do together um it may be a slightly different together but it's a whole lot more together than it was um, and I think that just reminding reminding yourself that you're the champion of the flame in some ways, I think is really um, is going to is really going to hold you in good stead. And I think also will um, make a real difference with your staff as well. So, um, uh, two of my favorite champions, Ellen and Nick. Thank you so much for joining us and um, for your. Um, your insights and your humanity and for, um, the really, really fine work that you do. So Nick, thank you so much. Thank you, John. And Ellen, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you. This was fun. Yeah. Appreciate it.
0: All right. Good. That's us. that's it for now. Thank you both for joining us and we'll see you next time. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.